0: for engaged people watching politics over this fortnight. I think the only reasonable interpretation, regardless of, you know, where you line up philosophically or ideologically, is this is a whole lot of desperate shit going down. Hello, lovely people of pods. It's Catherine Murphy. You're on the show. I'm the host, except I'm not this week. I was so traumatised by the horror show of politics that I needed my dear friend Jane Lee for a brief counselling session. And I'm very happy to oblige. Very (laughs) happy. (laughs) So Jane's going to be driving the pod bus uh, this week. We're going to be going back over the, uh, well, what the hell just happened, Jane?
1: I, I want to know too. That's why I'm asking you. So Murph, if you could pick one word to describe the last two sitting weeks of parliament that we've seen which word would you pick?
0: <laughs> there are so many words, Jane, so many words, uh, but I think probably the best word is wild, wild being a sort of subset I guess of ruthless um, we 're sort of at that point in politics and in in the and in the election cycle where you know whatever it takes really doesn 't even begin to describe I think what 's going to happen between now and when we have an election in May. So yeah, somewhere be two words, love, sorry to reframe the question right from the get-go, but wild and ruthless, I think would be my words. What were some of the wild highlights that we should relive? Yeah, well, look, in setting this up for uh, folks who haven't been watching uh, the circus as closely as you and I have, I think, over the last couple of weeks, uh, let's nail down the, the basics. Um, we've come back uh, into a parliamentary sitting after the summer break we are also now in the last sitting weeks of the current parliament basically we've just done two sitting weeks the government's going to deliver a budget in late march and then we're off basically we'll either be off at the end of that week or perhaps off at the end of the week after the budget so that's sort of the bare mechanics of it uh, in terms of you know <laughs> wild and and how and, and sort of stitching that story together, I think we sort of have to think about the two sitting weeks that have just passed, haven't we? So, so in the first parliamentary sitting week, what we saw was the government trying to resolve what was supposed to be Scott Morrison's signature reform. This legislation started out being a package about religious freedom. That was sort of at the time of the last election, what the Prime Minister had promised. Um, (laughs) The more the government went down the path of religious freedom, the more problematic and troubling landing that became. So then about halfway through this term, the government wound it back to start talking about an anti-discrimination proposal rather than a proposal that would give people affirmative freedom to, you know, uh, profess various elements of their religion, right? So, but even the discrimination element was difficult because in codifying rights for one group of people, sometimes that comes at the expense of rights for other groups of people. And basically uh, the, the Liberal and National parties, the coalition, the current coalition, are a very disparate group of people. There's a huge ideological spread in this government, from conservative to very moderate, and trying to land something that everybody could agree on along that spectrum was extremely difficult. It was fraught, and I think perhaps the prime minister uh, made a sort of uh, rookie error, is sort of not right, not quite right. He he underestimated, I think, uh, just how much. Uh, the, the sort of moderate end of the government was going to stand up on principle. I think I think he thought by leaving the package until literally the last sitting weeks of the current parliament. There's momentum behind that. There's a structure behind that. It's sort of obvious to every member of the government that we just have to be disciplined and do this thing. We can't have people wandering around the chamber like browns cows, right? Because in an election context, that's not helpful. But, and so blow me down, uh, browns cows absolutely, uh, absolutely happened. Uh, There was a group of five moderates that ended up crossing the floor on amendments, uh, which basically ended up torpedoing the whole package. So I think that that took the Prime Minister by surprise that moderates did that. It certainly took senior moderates by surprise that some of the more junior woodchucks in the parliament were prepared to do that. Uh, And so not only was that proposal torpedoed, in essence, Morrison looked at looked at the landscape and just thought, oh, my God, there's no way I can actually get this through the parliament unamended. He had to, you know, he basically had to abandon it. And then a whole sequence of backbiting and infighting broke out within the government because the Conservatives were absolutely ropeable that they couldn't get this legislation through. Conservatives thought, hang on a minute, we gave you characters net zero. We've given you lots of stuff over the course over this over this whole Parliament, and you guys could not even give us religious freedom. And so there, there was a. It wasn't only just the defeat of the legislation. The infighting in the government then spanned three or four days afterwards, as people were settling scores around the defeat of that legislation.
1: Mm, and that sort of sets up you know as you say Murph this is a really crucial time for the government going into an election year would in the dying days of Parliament. It sets up the whole year, the whole parliamentary year, on a on a pretty bad note for the coalition. Looking as though there's real divisiveness within the party that's seeking re-election. Um, so, I mean, what what can we take from that about uh, the broader sort of tensions within the coalition going yeah. forward?
0: Well, yeah, it was a, it was a very uh, it was a very poor look for the government as a group of people. Um, I think sort of. If we drill down slightly before we move on to what happened next, um, if we drill down slightly, I think part of the motivation for some of these moderates, apart from principle, and I think most of these people crossed the floor on principle, they couldn't believe that the government was prepared to protect gay kids but not trans kids. They just couldn't, you know, as a number of them said, I couldn't look in the mirror if I was prepared to sign up to that, so uh, so I think there were there were genuine there was genuine principle involved. I also think that group of moderates are very interesting because what they reflect, going back to your point, Jane, about division in the government, right, or the government being at different phases and stages. What you hear around the place is that support for the government is holding up more or less in outer suburban areas of the country, but people in the liberal party heartland in metropolitan australia in in the in the sort of inner outer cities if that makes sense in outer bits of cities are uh, just wanting to give this government a kicking like a, a really a really uh, disaffected by events really over the last several years so i think that manifested in the vote i think a number of those moderates were trying to tell their disaffected communities no, we're not just part of this monolith, right, that that you're unhappy about. We, we're listening to you. We're listening to our communities. We genuinely want to represent you. And that is a sort of indication that uh, what's happening at the moment is some of these campaigns by the so-called Teal Independents, so these climate-focused, integrity-focused independents, are really starting to rattle some of the some government MPs and i think that in part explains the religious discrimination vote that sort of signalling right so it's sort of the divisions that you, that you've rightly flagged with me—it's sort of—it's a symptom of the government being in, in in different places ideologically and philosophically, but also electorally. That there are there are different dynamics happening in different parts of the country at the moment, and that that's quite a difficult set of conditions for the prime minister to manage because uh, government MPs know that if there was an election held today or tomorrow they would very likely lose the election. In that environment, people can start to panic. People can start to take matters into their own hands, if that makes sense, right? If they're sitting in in seats with small margins or seats where they think that, uh, that this backlash may in fact take them out, it's quite difficult for the Prime Minister to maintain discipline in those conditions with everybody saying the same thing because fundamentally people in different parts of the country want different things. So you get that tension between people narrowcasting to their communities and that national imperative of looking like a government rather than a bunch of browns cows wandering all around the paddock looking as though you've got some sort of unity of purpose looking as though you've got a plan for what happens over the next 3 years in the you know in the in the event you win so yeah quite difficult conditions for the for the pm to manage
1: absolutely and then so you know after about a week of Infighting and furore over what's going to actually be in this bill once the Prime Minister realised it wasn't going to pass, it was shelved, meaning that we're already kicking off the year with, as we said division infighting, and on top of that, he's broken a promise before yeah. heading to the next he's not it's not going to pass before the next election.
0: So well, yeah, can't see it. I really can't see uh, because it's it's just fundamentally difficult to get a compromise on those issues with this group of people. Mm.
1: And so, what path did that set the government on for the rest of the two
0: weeks? <laughs> yeah, well, it was sort of interesting, Jay, because I think what happened in the first week had a significant impact on what happened in the second week. Now, obviously, uh, the Prime Minister has wanted, over the last several weeks, to start to pivot the conversation away from the pandemic and towards areas of the coalition's traditional political strengths. That's the economy and national security. So it's not like Scott Morrison came into the second week inventing this sort of national security fight, That was always part of the plan. But I think the first really messy week for the coalition determined how ferocious the second week became in terms of how uh, aggressively the Prime Minister prosecuted that national security debate. He wanted the whole country to be talking about national security. He didn't care whether people were criticising him, uh, praising him, Did, did not care. None of that mattered right as long as we were not talking about deaths in residential aged care or talking about the debacle of the previous week which is his signature reform his really big core promise hitting the fence not being able to be delivered the entire objective was get the whole country talking about national security even if we have to wear you know a bit a bit of a bit of a backlash or Or people standing up and saying, this this doesn't feel right, this doesn't look right. He honestly didn't care. His his entire objective really in that second week was go for broke, move past the debacle of week one, get people talking about the issue uh, that where we dominate electorally. That that was his entire objective.
1: Mm, I mean, I know you've written about this and you've been quite critical of, of the government's decision to sort of take this, you know, approach, ruthless approach on national security. I wonder if you think that in going for broke, as you say, he's taken a bit of a, a pretty big gamble because you've seen senior public servants, head of go, you know, people who would not usually want to be this far into the media sort of debate, actually speaking out and, and calling on the government to stop politicising national security. Um how big a risk is that in terms of the broader political stakes we're, speak, we're talking about here? Obviously Scott Morrison thinks it's worth the gamble because he's going ahead with it.
0: Well, well, that's that's sort of the spoiler alert. He, do, he does think it's worth the gamble so he's going ahead with it. But that doesn't mean that the week wasn't fascinating. It was really one of the more interesting, well, ugly, first of all. It was a very ugly parliamentary week, the most ugly one that I can remember. Uh, for for some period of time, genuinely ugly. Also fascinating uh, in that, as you said a minute ago, Love, you said th- there's been this open dialogue between uh, Liberal Party politicians and the national security establishment in the country. We've had a, a remarkable thing happen. We've had the head of ASIO, Mike Burgess, come out twice in the space of a week to say very politely, very diplomatically, uh, look guys, know there's an election on, but my people, you know, put their lives on the line to actually defend the country and, and to ensure that we're managing these risks. For us, this is not a seminar, this is life or death. So would you mind just dialing it back a fraction? Mike Burgess said, not once but twice in the space of a week. Highly unusual. And then we also had the appearance of Dennis Richardson, who is uh, one of the most distinguished former public servants in the country. Dennis Richardson is that old school Canberra Mandarin, you know, the last of them possibly, um, who has served both sides of politics in a long and distinguished public sector career. Uh, He's been the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs, the head of the Defence Department, the head of ASIO, and also for a period of time under under, uh, the Howard government, Australia's ambassador in Washington, which is one of the most sensitive and difficult diplomatic posts in the country in the sense of not that it's difficult to be in the States, but obviously you're managing the relationship with Australia's most important security partner. So it's a high-stakes, high-status position. Anyway, Richardson came out very forcefully in a series of interviews on Thursday, basically pushing what Mike Burgess had said. Well, I suppose it was less euphemistic. Mike Burgess was trying to walk a line where he's asserting the independence of his organisation but not sort of punching a politician in the nose, Um, Dennis Richardson came out with a double punch, uh, you know, quite extraordinary um, and very, you know, very plain speaking. He basically said, look, you know, this is a political circus and the only only interests being served here are China's interests um, by by this very high-octane hyperbolic rhetoric, right, which sort of, enhances social division. See, for foreign interference to work, you need a couple of conditions. You need people to to have low trust in institutions and you need people to be at odds with one another. That's where foreign interference operations actually can yield some benefit. So Dennis Richardson's point was a simple one. By manufacturing this fight, by suggesting there are partisan differences, i.e. that one major party will keep Australia more safe than the other major party or that the other major party is more, you know, less less into appeasement with China than the other, um, you know, Richardson said you, you're manufacturing differences that don't in practice exist and and in in effect you're doing China's work for it by creating this whole conversation around these issues again extraordinary Dennis Richardson doesn't burst out of his you know back deck or his lounge room every day of the week with thoughts he evidently thought that it was time for a course correction uh, and made some very very uh, well I think compelling points uh, compelling critiques about what was actually happening over the course of the week.
1: Murph, you described this week and this episode that we've been discussing as, you know, one of the ugliest that you've seen, and you've, you've seen a lot in politics over the years. So I wonder. (laughs) Too much, Jane. Too much.
0: (laughs) She's seen too much. (laughs) She's seen too
1: much. Um, I just wonder, Murph, what, what that means, that if, if, if this is one of the ugliest episodes, you know, and we're this close to an election, what, what can we take from that as, as voters and as people observing from the outside what's going on here?
0: Well, I think everybody needs to get earplugs and crash helmets. <laughs> <laughs> basically it 's sort of like they are going to go for broke that 's the thing obviously look it 's not unusual for um, uh, for coalition governments to uh, have a national security fight during an election period. People who are as old as me on this uh, listening to our conversation today love will remember of course the Tampa election uh, will remember you know this was sort of john howard 's stock in trade was sort of uh, sort of manufacturing these wedges. Uh, and for many years, Labor was, you know, Labor fell into various traps uh, and suffered electorally as a consequence, right? So, Stoking that fear exactly, before an election. Yeah. Exactly. Stoking that fear. Um, you know, we make the fear. We make the terror, right? It's like, um, you know, this is a stock in trade of, of coalition politics. I think the difference, though, between the Howard era and this one is that we used to talk about the Prime Minister John Howard at that time uh, being the master of the dog whistle, right? Um, The thing about a dog whistle is the noise is inaudible to humans. That's the point of it, right? That that you basically, Howard was very clever at sort of messaging or or putting a message out in the marketplace that was designed for a particular constituency that another constituency would not necessarily hear, right? Right. There was a bit of subtlety in the art of the national security scare <laughs> under this government i mean look in fairness to the prime minister we live in much noisier times than john howard right the times are so noisy people can barely hear, hear themselves think right if you're subtle in the current political era, maybe your message doesn't get across. But these guys, like, literally rolled out the cannons and just, it was like the blitz, right, rhetorically. They just, there wasn't any subtlety about it. There wasn't an attempt to, you know, do this in a sort of slightly nuanced, it was just like, you know, i got some heavy, heavy artillery, it's coming at you, buster. So, uh, you know. Yeah.
1: And I mean, maybe that goes back to the point I asked earlier about, you know, how big a gamble this was. Maybe in this environment where there is social media and there are are people talking at you from all directions all throughout the 24-hour news cycle, it is actually less of a
0: gamble than perhaps in Howard's time to... to (laughs) Well, look, it's it's sort of interesting. Um, it, it will be it will be very interesting to see how this filters through. I guess, um, there, of course, there will be people out there in the community uh, more engaged. I suppose engaged people, people who are engaged with politics, would have looked, you know, with a certain amount of horror. I think, regardless of their political persuasion, about the events of this week, I think engaged people will. Might just have a moment's hesitation, really, about what's going on and whether or not it's 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 right. Because I mean, obviously, what happened this week was wrong. It was profoundly wrong. Uh, but for people who are disengaged from politics and remembering they are the people who genuinely who determine election outcomes in this country, right? They uh, Scott Morrison, as a prime minister, only ever speaks to disengaged voters. It's the only people he ever speaks to. If you're an engaged voter and you listen to the Prime Minister, it's, you, you can spend a lot of time wondering, why is that guy not talking to me? He's not. He's not interested in you. He's interested in the people who decide the outcome of elections. What he wanted to do, I think, was sort of, you know, it's sort of like the art, the fine art equivalent of impressionism, right? He just wanted to get some ideas out there. Uh, and the ideas he wanted to get out there was Anthony Albanese is weak and weak on national security and suspect on China. Uh, China has chosen its preferred government in Australia, the Labor government. So that's a bit sus, isn't it? You know, what do you think about that? Why would they do that? Why would China do that? So it, it was sort of no more sophisticated than that. There were he just wanted to basically land some blows on his opponent. Now, why? Did he want to do that? Well, I mean, the sort of the fundamental why is obvious, but in terms of where Albanese is up to, uh, there's a chunk, if we look at our poll, love, if we look at the Guardian Essential poll, there's a chunk of voters, somewhere in you know the order of 25% of, of people in that sample, do not have a view yet about Anthony Albanese. They don't think he's a dickhead or, or a nasty person or they just haven't made up their mind. They don't don't know enough about this guy to have an opinion that they're happy to share with a pollster. So that suggests to the Prime Minister, I can actually create the character of this guy. I can actually talk to people who don't really understand who, who Albanese is or have particular views about him. I can start to shape a narrative about this guy in the minds of those people. So that's his purpose. He wants to, I guess, get the undecideds about Anthony Albanese off the fence in a negative way, right? There's more to this guy than meets the eye. Do we really know what his background is? He's just putting the questions there. Putting, without, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that's what it was about. It was sort of this impressionism. And so look, it's not without risk, it's not, you know, entirely risk-free behaviour and, again, for engaged people watching politics over this fortnight, I think the only reasonable interpretation, regardless of, you know, where you line up philosophically or ideologically, is this is a whole lot of desperate shit going down, right? Like it was sort of borderline hysterical in moments, right? If you were watching that closely, you just would have thought, oh, my God, what? What? right but again the Prime Minister's not speaking to those people he's speaking to people who watch politics out of the corner of their eye that's who he's talking to and whose vote is is absolutely up for grabs this you know people who's who are not rusted on one way and another and also just one final thought on that I, I recently uh, spent some time down with the protesters who were in Canberra? This was another sort of atmospheric element of the last couple of weeks. Canberra has been well and truly inundated by a whole bunch of people who object to vaccine mandates, who who think the vaccines are, you know, Bill Gates conspiracy, etc. Um, I spent some time down with the protests on the early days when they arrived in Canberra, just because I was curious, right? Like, what? Who are these people? What What is their purpose? And the thing that struck me on the first day particularly was how diverse that group of people were, F- far more than the media reporting of it would leave one to believe. Now, there were a whole bunch of people with some very, very kooky ideas, obviously, around and about as part of those protests. But there were also a bunch of people who looked for all the world like they were they could be branch presidents of their local Liberal Party chapter, right? And I had a conversation with one woman that really stuck in my head and it's sort of relevant to this concept of Impressionism, Jane, right? Like creating Impressionism, if you're Morrison. Uh, this woman who I was having a chat with uh, lived on a property just outside of Canberra and she'd heard about the protests on social media and, and she was she was interested. So she came in to have a look and be part of it. And what she said to me was, There's just so much information out there about everything all the time. I can't process it all and I don't know what to believe. I don't know what's true. I don't know what isn't true. I just can't make sense of it. So she said to me, you know, what will happen in this election is that people will be attracted to simple messages and simple solutions because after two years of living in a pandemic, like the biggest public health emergency since the Spanish flu, you know, there's been, everything is contested. Everything is, you know, from the point of view of a disengaged voter, who the hell do you believe? Who do you trust, right? It's all so confusing. So that lodged in the back of my mind. And as I watched the Prime Minister on the floor of the Parliament this week, I thought the Prime Minister is speaking to that woman. The Prime Minister is is basically uh, coming up with very, very simple narratives and explanations. People are good or bad and and that guy's bad and I'm good. It literally is that, that basic. And I thought, you know, this guy, he knows what he's doing as a political communicator. It doesn't mean that it'll work or it's a triumph or a masterstroke. And, you know, I said in a piece this week, we political journalists love, you know, me, you know, the whole apparatus of political journalism, we spend a lot of time asking the wrong question, right? Often we ask, will this particular tactic work? When what we should ask ourselves is, is this right? Is this moral? Is this in the national interest, right? But it's, it's entirely possible that even though Morrison's whole play in this week has been desperate, shameful and appalling, uh, you know, we shouldn't conclude that it won't work. You mentioned earlier, Murph, that in previous
1: elections, Labor has has fallen into a lot of traps in this sort of fear-mongering, fear-stoking type of tactic. How difficult is it, once the narrative has been set in a in a political week like the one we've just seen, for an opposition leader like Anthony Albanese to push back or change course or change the change the story that's being told it sort of feels like it's it's inescapable like you call it a trap but it's very difficult to sort of see how you'd reverse the course
0: no no exactly and it's a it's a really good question love and it's and it's uh I was sort of watching with considerable interest this week because I wanted to see exactly how he would try and maneuver his way out of it it's because there's it, it, it isn't easy there isn't a simple way to do it because uh, Anthony Albanese was obviously managing a spectrum of views within his own party as these wedges came at him as well, both on religious discrimination and on the national security matters. Um, I I said on the radio through the week it was sort of like tantrum management. In a way, if you've got someone thrashing around having a massive tantrum, you've sort of got to apply the parenting approach. Obviously, the best approach isn't to thrash around back and start shrieking back. That just doesn't work. In a way, you've got to stop, you've got to slow things down, you've got to try and, and, you know, sort of look, look as though, uh, you know, you're, you're calm and you're rational. And I think that was his objective this week as well as trying to basically not fall for these legislative wedges. So, look, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story and it's an ongoing one, Jane, because this is the reality, this is the election terrain. There's nothing going to change about these conditions. These conditions will persist up until polling day. And I suppose that the fascinating thing too will be about this, going to your question, is whether the opposition leader can find another gear, whether he can find a way of disrupting the, the picture that Morrison wants to paint of him uh, without sort of being drawn onto the government's preferred territory. That's the risk. If you want to sort of go for close-in combat and to combat this propaganda about yourself, inevitably you're fighting on ground that, that is beneficial to the coalition, if that makes sense. So, look, I don't know if he's got a magic wand. I don't know. I don't know what he's got. I think it's critical for him over the next sort of couple of months is to find that extra gear and and how how that is or looks for him would be different for any political candidate people would find a, a different way of finding the gear, if that makes sense, right? Like I can't sit here and tell you from my position how he should conduct himself. No, there's no formula. There's no there's sort no of formula. playbook exactly. that he has to just follow, the, otherwise that politics would be very easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'd have nothing to write about or Step talk about one. on a podcast, <laughs> would we? I mean, if it was... So anyway, yeah, but he's. it's, it's definitely, I think that's the challenge. I think if we sort of summarise it this way, people in the coalition know that Scott Morrison can win an election in very adverse circumstances because he's done it. They they all saw him do it in 2019. Anthony Albanese thinks he can do it, but he doesn't know he can do it because he's never done it before. And his colleagues don't know that about him either. They think they're well positioned, but they don't know if Anthony Albanese can close the deal. So, He's got to find the gear, he's got to find the meter and the temper and and the tone to close the deal. That's his challenge over the next several weeks. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. You could hear uh, how beneficial that therapy session was for me. Uh, so, so, thank you, Jane. If you love Jane, like we do at Guardian Australia, of course, you can go and find her podcast, which is called Australia Reads. Go and look for that. It is marvellous. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, the EP of this show, an all around good guy. Thank you to you guys for listening, sharing all the usual drill. God knows what will happen next week, but we'll be back.